Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us as we journey through the Silmarillion, exploring the deepest reaches of Tolkien's history, starting with the first song and ending with the defeat of Sauron's master, the Dark Lord Morgoth. Okay, sure. Um, who wants to start us off with something you've thought about or um, wanted to talk about today? Is the recording and stuff all set up? <laughs> yep. Okay. I, <clears throat> I'm going to jump ahead to the end and say the yep. same thing probably two weeks in a row. Sorry. Uh, but only because I can't think of anything else because my brain is fried, as, <laughs> as per usual at the end of the semester. Uh, that scene where Farfarazon achieves his immortality, um, I, uh, I like that one. Nice. And I'm not going to spoil what that means for anyone who hasn't actually got to the end yet. I'm, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, like, I, I enjoyed it. I was, um, I know it, it's, it's a very rich story. And one thing I found was actually that there seems to be, uh, like there's a lot in it but there's also like i i found the parts where kind of it like it kind of like the silmarillion in general but the akalabeth really um kind of focuses in on very particular moments and then just broadens out for generations yeah. um but it also kind of in that it also like shifts genre into very interesting places um, like, one of the things that really stood out to me was the whole, um, when, uh, uh, the, uh, whole, like, mini philosophical discussion, like, uh, it's, uh, what's the, what's the one from Morgoth's Ring, uh, Oh, the Atherbeth Renata and yeah, yeah, I was thinking about that. The, the Like it feels like a miniature Atherbeth for a very small moment where we're like, let's talk philosophy about mortality and whether or not it's a good thing to live forever or not. Um and then it kind of expands out. Um uh yeah, I mean the the ending is I think some of the most like engrossing like stuff uh just just story wise um which i it was like i was i was shocked at how much like good like story material is there um frankly if we we're getting any like if we're getting any of this in uh the amazon series this will be a very <laughs> that would be a very good show <laughs> any good way um if you want That's to know what thing. they're allowed to put into the Amazon series, then like go yeah. see how much of this is in the appendices of Lord of the Rings because yeah. that's what they have no, the rights to. That's that's Lord fair. That's fair. Um, but yes, <laughs> the whole like Sauron like Second Age is just uh, man. The the f fact that they have and Sauron came is such a meaty lovely yeah. parallel mm -hmm. and in the in the weird like, i don't know if we'll get to it this week but 
I won't be here next week, I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, leave some stuff for the discussion. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, sorry, I, I was, yeah, I, the very, very excellent, like, just singular piece, and I, and I kind of love it for that. Fair, I, I have notes. We will come back to things. Uh, Eloise. I really, 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 really do not like how the men who are not Numenorean are described at every mm. place. Like, even I'm just gonna, like my, I'm just gonna read, write like, racism in the note. To talk about like a bit before even like the Edain move to Bellarion, like the reminders of what happened. And I'm like, hmm, I really don't like that already, you know. But then, like, when the new generation arrive and they're like, oh, yeah, colonization, cool, isn't it? Oh, yeah, they very much talk like colonizers and they're like, oh, they're the barbarians, they have no organization, they have no cultures. And I'm like, red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag, <laughs> <laughs> And I really hated it. I was like, I don't think you're saying something fully true. I think you're slightly biased by the fact you want to pick their lens. So yeah, that's my big opinion. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, I'm gonna give you Tristan's point because it's hysterically funny, and then and he's not gonna be here next week either. Uh, and then my point. So, um, I read this out loud to Tristan, and it was just it, there was m way more in the Acalabeth than I remember there being in the Acalabeth for some reason. Um, it was a very intense story. And okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> in the turn of the king when aragorn goes to get his undead friends from the paths of the dead they pass the stone of erech and you are informed that the stone of erech came from numenor that is hysterically funny information to remember when you are reading the Akalabeth because you get to the part where um Elendil has like three has I don't know a certain number of ships seven of them four four for Elendil three for Isildur no it's nine two for Anarian yeah there are nine ships total yeah. but thank you you told me how many um the first two had uh, Yes. No, 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 that's fine. Yeah. So, yeah, so so it tells you that they have those ships, and Elendil, like, takes his takes his sons or whatever, and is like, all right, or, or Amandil, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, either Dad or Gramps is like, okay, so pack light, take only the essentials, <laughs> and what you cannot bear to be parted with, and Isildur is like, great, I've got this, um, So, okay, the stone, so Tristan mathematically calculated the approximate weight of the stone of Iraq because it is described as being, uh, oh shit, is it a six foot radius or a six foot diameter sphere? I don't remember. One of those two. And it's like, it, it, it's half buried in like, so it's like a dome, which is like six feet either across or in radius. And it's like, half buried in the ground so we're 
like it, it said it's half buried in the ground. So we're assuming that it's a full sphere. So with the average, oh my God, Josh, <laughs> I'm talking about the stone of Iraq. Um, so with like the average density of stone, uh, Tristan calculated that the stone of Iraq is a giant fucking sphere that weighs 70 tons. And Zolor, like, had this thing pushed onto his boat. This is what he, this is what they traveled with. This somehow didn't capsize his boat. Travel light, pack only what you need. I had heard this point, I think, like, uh, when we read the appendixes last year. And so when I read the Calabas, I was like, how did they technically, like, so how big was the ship? Or, like, did they make, like, tiny little floaters for the whole thing and they just carried the, 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 the stone behind them? Because, like, how? Just how? Like, oh, Tristan was telling me that, like, uh, a ship, I don't remember what kind of ship he was looking at, but some kind of ship had a capacity of um, 100 tons. And so this thing takes up 70 of those 100 tons. Yeah, but I will argue that uh, ships that had a capacity of 100 tons had, had 100 tons spread out across the ship, not boom, in the middle yeah. or wherever <laughs> you put the stone, which would significantly pose problems on balancing your freaking ship. Oh, so it's a sphere, oh, wow. so it rolls around. Oh my freaking god, Isildur, of all things, like... Did you have, like, a whale pet that carried it for you? I don't know. But, like, honestly, it's insane. I understand why, like, Tristan is getting mad about it. It's so hysterical. Like, this is obviously just not something Tolkien thought through, but it's so funny when you think about it. Um, yeah, that ship is, like, just the crew, the stone of a rack, and packing peanuts. Wait, I have another... I have a question. Are we <laughs> yeah. sure... That is when they moved it, because there are some people who moved it, who moved before between Middle Earth and Numenor. So maybe that's I guess that's fair. That's when they moved it, when they actually had so, time. I mean, <laughs> they say Isildur brought it, so. Oh shit! Um, but did he move back and forth uh, before? Um. So. It's it's six foot in diameter, so it is the smaller of the two options. Okay. Um, I I was just make I, my thought was just let's just give him an entire set like, uh, we're leaving Numenor, so we'll bring Numenor with us. We'll bring the tree. We'll bring a rock. He probably has a swimming pool of Numenor spring water somewhere on there too, just for the whole set. So basically, I don't know what arguing... like he put that in. So basically, but what you're arguing is one. that Isildur's ship is Isildur's ark, and that he just brings a pair of every animal of Numenor, including that is not animal and like living according to like breathing things. And he also added all of the environment. He he just has a living zoo on his boat. That's what you're arguing. Uh, I don't know about zoo, but at least I—I I was just saying like the physical island. But if you wanted to do a zoo, it would be very funny. Yeah. <laughs> the only—the only way that ship moved is if you had like 
I don't know, some, you know, you have some, like, sailor on deck being like, Sildor, we couldn't move, like, a ship, this move, the ship won't move unless, like, the gods themselves blow us to Middle Earth. <laughs> you gigantic wind. <laughs> and, you know. Yeah. And, and then we took pity on those sailors and was like, yeah, he made you drop them. That, 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 or, um, I don't know, you see a lightning bolt strike um, the, the, the mountain, a rock flies up, lands in front of them when they land in Middle Earth, and Asilda's like, I meant to bring that. <laughs> Equally uh, plausible. Okay. Um, hey, Josh, do you want to say something that you wanted to talk about? Can't hear you. You're unmuted, but I can't hear anything if you're talking. Okay. Just silent. Wow, I hate technology. That's where we're gonna recognize like which year it was for like the podcast. You have the podcast <laughs> where we like just have like random like room noise in the background, and then you have one year when you have like we can't hear you or you muted, <laughs> and that's where we even knew that it was like the the podcast from like the pandemic. No need to like yeah. think this. Okay, well, I guess I'm gonna go then. Um, okay, so I read the first couple pages of the Acalabath and I was like, this is full of lies. Um, I don't know if I should explain or if we should just like start talking about this. Hello? Hello? Yeah, no, you're good. Oh, yeah, I just had to restart Discord completely. Ooh. Cool. Uh, yes, um, I have a couple of brief thoughts and then maybe a longer one. Um, I don't know if this was deliberate on Tolkien's part, but the kings of Numenor follow rather the pattern of the kings of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament, where it's just a steady decline and then... They briefly try to recapture everything at the end, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, I'm 100% sure that was purposeful, given how, like, the style is also, like, Bible reminiscent. Cool. That, that would be very neat. Um, I think in the, in the first paragraph, it seems to imply that the perspective of the elves is that men are fundamentally evil and the ones who joined them in the west are the weird ones mm -hmm. um but i think the biggest thing overall is that neither the elves nor the valar fundamentally understand how people work yeah. it's like here you can't do this thing no i'm not going to tell you why wait why are you trying to do it all of a sudden yeah um 
Yes. Okay. I think that's going to be, yeah, a rich discussion for this part. Cause that came up with uh, Tristan too, where we were talking about like how the Valar literally just try to recreate what they did for the elves, but slightly worse. And like yeah. that went great for them the first time. And even, even the elves didn't learn about how to work with people because they're like, they're, they, the messengers, the elvish messengers from the Valar come in and say, this this thing that you have where you're like uncomfortable with like the void and not knowing what's going to happen to you after you die yeah turns out that's maybe a symptom of being evil so you shouldn't do that anymore how about that yeah okay um while you were gone, I shared my point, which is that I read the first few pages of the Akalabath and my reaction was, this is full of lies. Um, <laughs> so, okay. With that in mind, um, this history of, this history of like Middle Earth that we get in the first few pages, not Middle Earth, uh, Beleriand that we get in the first few pages of the Akalabath and like the founding and creation of Numenor. Um, I would like to dive straight into the deep end um, and say that, uh, okay, so like race making is exactly what it sounds like. It's the process of making a concept of race or of codifying people according to characteristics that are implied or stated to be inherent and of kind of inherent and hereditary and of separating groups out according to them. So my question is, uh, can we see any mechanisms of race-making happening in this early Akalabeth? And if so, what? Humans are fundamentally evil, <laughs> yes, except, those, uh, except those who like had the moral strength to escape Morgoth because that was like they had a fundamentally something good in them or something. I'm like, not everyone can move across a continent. Even the Nord, even the elves who were given the opportunity, very much hesitated several times along the way. Just saying. So, those who don't have a guide are very likely to not move at all. Um, mm, mm? Particularly when they're not sure they can't escape this evil that is apparently every freaking where. So, yeah. Um, I Back to my point, I really don't like how the men of Middle-earth, who are not the Edain, are described. Yeah. It's just like... Yeah, the state because they are evil and they love Morgoth. I'm like, maybe not all of them. Uh, maybe loving Morgoth is more like a survival tactic when you know that you are very much outnumbered and outstrengthed and that you have, like, you seem to be in a desperate situation. Like, the Edain who moved west did that out of despair. They were like, I mean, like, maybe in the west there is something. We had rumors of that. But there's no certainty. It's just like maybe it's gonna be a tiny bit better than it is here, which is not very hard because Mongols didn't like raise the bar very high. Um, like both staying, like all of like the solution, like staying and trying to survive and stay neutral 
uh, staying and allying to Morgoth and leaving are just their tactics to survive the things that they living with. Uh, and like I'm not saying that some were not like servants Morgoth and Nereida, like nuances. People are different. But I think like overall the groups were very much all desperate and did what they thought was best for their survival. And it's very fair. Yeah. 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 I, I would agree with that. Turns out that when you're living under Morgoth and your life just kind of sucks, maybe you'd rather stay there because you're you're terrified that going anywhere else and doing anything else with your life will just suck way more. Welcome to trauma response. Yeah, and also like Morgoth does spread lies about like the Valar's are heavy, uh, even worse than me. Like, I would know, I'm one of them. Uh, <laughs> I used to be one of them. Uh, you know, like he does spread lies about like the elves and about the Valar and about what's in the West. Um, he also has care tactics. It's like uh, he probably, uh, if you try to leave, guess what's happening to your family? Or those you care for if you leave by yourself. Uh, and if you can't convince your whole group to leave, you either have to choose to leave alone and know with the knowledge that they might not have a great time behind, uh, or you don't leave. It's just it's a complex situation, dear dear elves and Valar. So you can't just um, say people who stay in Morgoth's type like. Morgoth lands are like just evil because it's inherently inherent to their... Morgoth is sounding more and more like North Korea all the time. Um, I think that's a very good like first point. So point number one is the moralizing of the people who left versus the people who didn't into different groups. Mm -hmm. um, are there other thoughts? So, um, I mean, one thing very clear is that, uh, to me, is that the, I'd have to probably blame the elves most likely for this, but the, uh, the whole, because the elves have a certain way that they racialize themselves in in terms of who moved, right? Mm -hmm. at, at, from Quivianen and how and where. And that's how they determined it. And it seems that, like, just like the Valar are like, let's do elf plan all over again, <laughs> version two. Um, the elves are... <coughs> Sorry. Doing the same with men. It's like, oh... Okay, the people who moved west are good, and those who didn't are, you know, are the like dark men. Except this one has a moral implication, and not. The other thing, though, I notice is that they, like, in terms of race making, there's an extreme conflation of geography, lineage, and like, I don't know what to call it, but divine right. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> right. It's like okay, here is. Right, we we give you this island. It is blessed by the Valar. Um, 
and it will be, you know, the king will be descended from, you know, uh, Arendel, you know, the, like, best of, like, the half, like, well, you know, best of both races, uh, through, uh, through Elros, and, you know, you have this, like, great, glorious, heroic descent, and blessings of long life, and, uh, knowledge from divine powers, and it all gets wrapped up into Numenorians, and the, the one line is, which is called, what was it? Yeah, which is called, uh, uh, in the Grey Elven Tongue, like, uh, Dunedain, Numenorians, king, Kings Among Men, and I'm like, okay, uh, I don't believe that Kings Among Men bit is a translation, <laughs> but, like, so when does that, like, is that a descriptor when they start imperializing everyone, like, halfway through their, like, um, Thing, or is that a idea that is brought in very early that shapes how they think of themselves? And it's very unclear on how that works. Um, I if I had to guess, I would probably, or if like I was adapting this, I would probably make it a descriptor of later elves. But the fact that it is unclear in the text is a very uh, uh, possibly disturbing notion to kind of bring, like, you are blessed, you are better than other men, you are more elf-like, you are more <laughs> knowledgeable, you are longer-lived, and all of this makes this, like... <laughs> I was gonna... I, my brain put in Uber Race, and I'm like, I'm not, I, I both do and do not want to use Uber <laughs> in this... <laughs> in this phrasing, because... You know... But yeah, it's like... It's it's basically saying, by the power vested in me by the Valar, I hereby give you the right to colonize. Which is kind of problematic. Um, I think what it is saying, the thing is, I mean, the thing is... of Jordan's point, um, is, I think what it is saying is, you are literally, like, it's drawing, it's taking... <laughs> taking the concept of being enlightened and literalizing it to a certain extent, right? Because it's like there, there is an, you're, there's, there's being closer to the light, which is equated to being closer to wisdom. So it's creating this sort of enlightened versus under the shadow dichotomy, which I would argue in the Lord of the Rings is literalized into skin tone though it, I don't think it is in the Akalabad I don't know how this fall if this falls into like a second point of rationalization or if it falls into the first one sort of but like um again I really don't like how this describes the people who are like in the east so those of the evil men who were not destroyed fled back into the east, where many of their race were still wandering in unharvested lands, wild and lawless. They have no civilization. They don't. They don't cultivate. They just live like wildlings everywhere. They have no organization. They need the guiding hand. 
of those dear colonizers from who know better. Are you annoyed yet? I hate those. Um, it's like it it equates like harvest and so like agriculture with civilization, which is bullshit. You can have civilization without agriculture. It's just a different form of civilization. Um, and it implies that if you don't have agriculture and this specific form of civilization, you are wild and you are lawless. So you have no social structure, no political structure, no almost no intelligence to build those. Like so that's a stretch that have been drawn to uh, in uh, world earth uh, colonialism. So red flags and I don't know how much it does in, in terms of racialization but it very much uh, justifies uh, colonizing later that's all yep mechanisms of civilization and civilizational like advancement or whatever um Okay, yeah, like this is because the thing with this is that like everyone's picked up on the fact that this really, really uncomfortably exists alongside real world history and attitudes. Um, okay, I want to talk about my this is literally full of lies point for a minute. Um, so Eloise, what you're saying about like, yeah, the portrayal of um, the people who stayed in Middle Earth as uh, like lawless and worshiping Morgoth is like in some parts seemingly true. Um, but when you were talking, I was thinking about the Druidine from the uh, Lord of the Rings and like we can talk about like the druidine and kind of like stereotyping and that sort of thing but in spite of the stereotyping of the druidine like there are a couple things that are like that we know for sure and it's like they definitely do not worship morgoth um they definitely have laws and customs um and they live in the woods and never went to Valinor and don't farm. Um, so like the portrayal of them is like not what this, like not what you would assume based on reading this. Um, I also really wanted to pick up on Jordan's point about uh, the way the elves categorize themselves. Um, and like, I kind of have this theory that the reason the elves are so insistent on there being three houses of the Adain is because there were three houses of elves. Like there's the Vanyar, Noldor, and Teleri, and they just, they just want the humans to fit that so badly. Um, because like when I say that this is full of lies, um, it completely misrepresents who the Adain are because like if you read the Silmarillion um carefully uh <laughs> like every every method that they have here of defining the Adain doesn't make sense um 
they're like the three houses of the Adain are the people of Beor, the people of Hador, and the people of Haleth. And so if you're defining the Adain as men who fought with elves against Morgoth, then it's very weird that you're including the people of Haleth who like rejected Caranthir and then only very, very tenuously allied themselves with Thingol out of convenience. Um, but you are excluding the people of Boar who were called Easterlings, but who fought with Mithros. They're like, there were those two houses that joined with Mithros and the house of Boar is the one that was faithful and the house of Ulfang is the one that was not. So you are excluding them. Um, and then if you are trying to define the Adain as the descendants of these three houses, who, like, the question of who was left to fight against Morgoth during the War of Wrath, like at the end of the Silmarillion, um, the answer to that cannot be, like, the direct descendants of just those three peoples who initially came into Middle Earth. Because um, in the case of the people of Beor and the people of Hador, like almost all of their men died. Um, and the only reason their women survived is because they were all in Hithlam, which was then under the dominion of unknown Easterlings. Like we don't really know who those people were other than they were Easterlings, which is already a complicated category. So like who we are told intermarried with the woman of Dorloman because that happens in Turin Turumbar. So like the population of men <laughs> that is present in Middle-earth at the end of the Silmarillion is the mixed descendants of Easterlings and Edain, maybe some Haladin, except in the wanderings of Hurin, like the direct descendants of the House of Haleth kill each other. Yeah, um, they do. <laughs> Can confirm. Presumably also intermingled descendants of the House of Boar, because again, like they say they're all wiped out but the woman probably went somewhere. So, so <laughs> this is an insane way to talk about it. Like you're, you're creating a continuity where there explicitly like isn't one and where it does not make any sense to make one. And not only are you doing that, but then you later reapply the word Easterlings in Lord of the Rings when you had previously applied it to people who logically are now Numenorean. <laughs> so, given that this is called the Akalabeth, which is Adunaic, and that it's written from the perspective of the people who lived in Numenor, do you think that this is um, the the people who went to Numenor and their descendants rewriting history in order to categorize themselves as separate from other men. 
that is a good question. I want to put it with the group, but like paired with the question, when you read the first sentence, it is said by the Eldar that men came into the world, blah, 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 blah. Do you read this as something that the elves wrote? So my question is, do you read this as something elves wrote, Numenorians wrote, or other? Maybe something written by men who were um, like heavily influenced by elves. So that's kind of their their source of their own history in a way. That's what the elves say. So potentially like Numenorians or Dunedain. Yeah. Yeah, initially it sounds like it's the elves speaking, but I think on more examination, it could easily be um, written by the Numenorians, but they don't have records of their own very early history, so they have to take the elves' word for where they started. I kind of write that as a rewriting, like constant rewriting. Like, so like the elves told us that about us, because, and even that I take with a grain of salt, because yes, the elves have like a written record, but like, I think it's not completely out there to consider that human may have oral traditions that they just mixed with the elves. Um, but they just say they took the elvish records because written records we all know are the best. That's not true, but, uh, you know, um, uh, well, that's not necessarily true. Um, yeah, so, and I, I'm not sure how much has been rewritten by the Numenorean who escaped the disaster of Numenor, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not fully sure those are like the original Numenorean records as much as it's like oh yeah we read those records copied them and then lost them uh, and so now those are like the, the, the record we have but there's a heavy bias of like the Numenorean that became evil like explanation explanation is like not really the true dying or something or like you know it's a little brother or something yeah fundamentally this does have to be written by the survivors i mean it could have been written by like the people before if like the survivors as wizards jack and nick rock decided that they could not be parted with the records of the house you know but even if they did that, like, decided to, like, smuggle some, like, paperwork in addition to a gigantic stone, um, like, I'm not fully sure that, like, it's those records that have been used to get into the calabas, if that makes sense. There's at least one bit where this story shows, like, a really explicit awareness of history has to be written by the survivors and it's um 
Amondo. It's like no story or legend tells of what happens to Amondo when he tries to sail to Valinor. And this doesn't give you an answer because no one can know. So, yeah, I don't know. Can you think of other examples where there might be hints as to like what kind of perspective or what kind of history the people, the, the, the people, the, the fictional people writing this um, would have had access to? I mean, there is this, like you get kind of a, a top-down perspective on things that no one could have seen except for the Valar. Um, so there's a sense that there's some, there's some sort of link there, because it's, it's not told with, again, the legends say, or so the story goes. It's like a very authoritative take that there must be some sort of communication from the Valar to there's a chain of communication from the Valar to whoever's writing this, um, which to me is like Valar to elves, and then to elves again, and then to whoever's writing this is how it reads to me. But yeah, I agree. Like there's stuff in here that is so specific, authoritative, and Valar focused without being attributed to legends, like the final fate of our fairs on. I just have a question. Is the singing on Illinois happening before, after, or at the same time as the singing of Beleriand? Way after. Way after? Okay. Oh, that's why yes. you're going to no. do it. No, I, this I is... Have... I was questioning that because it's like like this it didn't make sense to me but like it was like big big gap in between like, For, I was like this is second page like, we still had Beleriand and suddenly there's nothing and they go to middle earth so. no 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 this so is uh, go ahead yeah I, I was just so think of it like the Quintus Silmarillion is the first age of uh, the world or the sun, I guess, really, because there's ages before that, but that's yeah. the age of the sun, first age of the sun. Valerian sinks. Um, I'm not sure if between, I'm not sure about the sinking to when they establish Numenor, that's iffy, but this is second age, and I'm not clear. Is, is the sinking of Numenor the end of the second age, or is it at the defeat of Sauron? The end of the Second Age is the defeat of Sauron and the Last Alliance, but that is like in the range yeah. of, I want to say, 20 to 50 years post-sinking, so it's almost yeah. over. Yeah, so in a, within a century of the sinking, but yeah. this is, yeah. Yeah, so this is the, uh, yes. Time, timeline, yeah. But yeah, we have a few, yeah. 2000? How, how, how long was the reign? Or, or how long was... I want to say 2,500 to 3,000 years. There's, at yeah. some point in the middle of this, it says this was 2,000 years after the establishment of Numenor, but I can't remember yeah. where that was. Yeah, so... 
one thing going uh, on the front and they're like, yeah, it's facing currently facing us. Something like that. Which is a very, very long time. Yeah. But this is fantasy. Numbers get large. Or yeah. Usually. I like that the, that the Silmarillion doesn't do a good job of highlighting that the War of Wrath sunk a continent. It's kind of a yeah. big deal. Uh, but it's sort of glossed over, and I always had a confusion about that too. Like, so where did this continent go that we always read about in the Silmarillion? Yeah, it's kind of like a footnote in the War of Wrath. Like, by the way, we destroyed everything. I mean, yeah, I do want to know more about that. I mean, the fact that uh, the Earth gets turned round at the end of this story is also something that people can very easily gloss. Like, there's a couple vague hints, and then there's one point where it mentions it specifically. And if you miss that, it's like, no, the world went from flat to round, and that's the big deal right now. Okay, here we go. Um, the the 2,000 years is when the messengers of the Valar were coming. They say it was to Tar Atanamir that the messengers came. He was the 13th king. And in his day, the realm of Numenor had endured for more than 2,000 years. Um, when we get to Arpharazon, he is the 24th king. So not quite double the number of kings, but they probably had shorter lifespans. So I would say 3,000 years is a decent estimate for lifespan in Numenor. I, I, have brought up, I have brought up the tale of years from the return of the king. Uh, That's probably a good source. So, uh, Second Age, year 32, uh, the Adine reach Numenor. Um, uh, year 1 is the foundation of the Grey Havens. So, you know, uh, Valerian has sunk, and the Grey Havens now exist on Middle-earth. 32, Adine reach Numenor. Um, th 3,261 are on the Golden... Uh, set sail and lands on Umbar. Okay, so yes. Uh, here we go. Uh, three, 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 one, nine. He sails to Valinor, downfall. Um, and then three thousand four hundred and forty-one. Sauron is overthrown. So yeah, we have hundred and twenty years of uh. Uh, Numenorians in exile before they completely overthrow Sauron. Yeah. 3,300 years of uh, of Numenorians uh, believing themselves to be superior to men. Other men. <laughs> That's the... So, um... Okay, so I was also looking up the textual history of this because that was super relevant to the conversation we were having and I just kind of forgot to. So I will try and look into this more for next week's book study, like into the text surrounding it. But okay, for now, according to lordofthings.fandom.com, um, the story originated with The Lost Road, Tolkien's abandoned time travel novel. Um, Hi, Josh. I'm going to send him this because this is interesting. And, um, okay, so it apparently Christopher Tolkien notes in The Peoples of Middle-Earth that in the final version of the Akalabeth, the work is written in the voice of Pengalov, 
and that the story was originally addressed to Elfline by him. Um, Rob, can, Rob can explain what that means. Is that pigeon? Muted. Sorry, I missed what you said. What, uh, what oh. am I explaining? Okay, uh, Christopher Tolkien notes in The Peoples of Middle-earth that in the final version of the Akalabeth, the work is written in the voice of Pangolov, and that the story was originally addressed to Alfwine by him. Oh, yeah, Alfwine's a mariner that is so so awesome, he gets to visit the elves. And, uh, they tell him stories, and he learns stuff. And he wants to be an elf sometimes, but... <laughs> Back when there was a, a frame narrative that was trying to link like the world as we know it and our existing mythology um, into this mythology of Tolkien's. That was kind of the, elf one was sort of the link between those two. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, in terms of like actual textual history, um, this is written about three, two thirds to three quarters of the way through uh, the Lord of the Rings. Is when he actually writes when he writes the Numenor story, um, Tolkien. Um, so, which is why a lot of it, you know, he makes a part of Aragorn's backstory and then also like <laughs> writes writes this or you know, the a bunch of this stuff uh, at that time and then goes back and finishes the Lord of the Rings with all this <laughs> added back in. Um. So this. This says that, like, the, the first sentence that we were talking about, right, it is said by the Eldar that men came into the world, etc., etc. Um, apparently, the authentic text began, of men, Elfwine, it is said by the Eldar that they came into the world in the time of the Shadow of Morgoth. Christopher then admits that this removal made the whole source lose its anchorage in Eldarin lore, and he believed he used poor judgment and excessive vigilance, which also led him to alterations at of the end of the paragraph, perhaps editorial work that was not his properly to make, as he went against his father's original intent. Christopher also points out that the last paragraph of Akalabeth, as published in the Silmarillion, still contains indirect references to Alfwine, the straight road, and other future mariners, which he never altered or removed. So Pengalov is basically an elf scribe on Tol Arasea. So this was originally written as a text attributed to him. So this is, this is, really is not a Middle Earth text at all. It's a, it's a, yeah. No, it really isn't. So in the like, in the, the fiction of like, like if this, if the Silmarillion is supposed to be Bilbo's quotation. Like that. There's no way. There's no way this this text could have gotten to Elrond. There's no way that happens unless, like, Ibrary has a present. Although technically Elrond could have gotten to this text.
Tristan, I told them about the Stone of Iraq. I did a much worse job of explaining than you. It's so big. So ridiculously big. Also, I, I love how it came in and you were somehow discussing like the first sentence and I'm like, wow, an hour <laughs> in. And this is how far we've gotten. Wait. Where does uh, Pengala, um, where's Pengaloth written about? I'm kind of curious about that character. Um. Okay, like Sarah, tales or like later Lord of the Rings text, I believe. Oh God. Okay. Um. Because there's another character that does something similar, although they're not exactly a lore master, um, but they're the one who tells these these stories. Um, so I'm curious where uh, where this character comes in because they sound really interesting. He's the tallest of the elves of Gondolin. Okay, Pengaloth was a lore master of the Noldor who dwelt in Gondolin, to whom are attributed the Lamas and other prominent linguistic texts from ancient Middle-earth. Uh, born in Nevrast to a Noldoran lord and a Sindarin lady. Um, early tales about the fall of Gondolin mention him as one of the lords of the city and ruler of the twin folk of the Pillar and the Tower of Snow. So it's that guy. Uh... He's known as the Sage of the Noldor, counted as the great lore masters, greatest lore master since Feanor and Rumil, the tallest of the elves of Gondolin, escaped with Tuor and Idril's company, followed them to the mouths of Syrian. Uh, the Annals of Beleriand are attributed to him, as well as the edited Annals of Amon, furthering the work of Rumil, um, which means that the Dúnedain had a chance to copy his work. Uh, it was during his stay at the mouths of, of Syrian that he did the majority of his work based on information obtained from the refugees of Doriath. Um, he preserved the tears. Okay, none of that really matters. Um, apparently, he lived in Gilgalad's kingdom in Linden and also went to Khazad-dûm, left Middle-earth during the War of the Elves and Sauron and after the fall of Eregion. And so that's before the downfall of Numenor, and left for Tol Arisea, last of the lore masters to leave Middle Earth. After removing himself to Tol Arisea, dwelt in a village called Taverbell. Centuries later, Alfwine spoke him spoke with him there. Um, yeah, uh, his only appearance is in the history of Middle Earth, where he is said to be the author of many works, including the Annals of Beleriand. A work, work which was developed by Tolkien at the same time as the Silmarillion, in which from which Christopher Tolkien drew much information to establish the published Silmarillion. Uh, various late essays by Tolkien dealing with linguism are presented as being the work of Pengalov. Um, early Tolkien text stated that after Pengalov moved to Tolarisea, the figure of Gilfanon, which fulfilled a similar role as a chronicler of the Annals of Beleriand in earlier, earlier works, likely became this character as well. Um, and Pengalov, or by proxy Alfwine, is the narrator for most of the materials that make up the published Silmarillion, either as the active storyteller slash mentor teaching Alfwine or via Alfwine's translation of Pengalov's writing. In the final version, Christopher Tolkien removed most of the references to both of them. So interesting. There, there is. Bye. Bye. There, there is. A, there is a chapter in the Peoples of Middle Earth called Dangweth Pe Pengalod. Yes. Yes. 
So, not sure exactly what's all in here, but yes, volume 12. Where's the Joshua? <laughs> we need him. <laughs> or I mean, I, I have Sarah included some of the later writings of Pengalod in her if you want to read everything in Middle Earth chronologically presentation. I haven't read it. I haven't opened. It's not. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, he would have been around with the war between. Uh, um, oh, why? Why is why? Why is his name? Uh, the the ringmaker. Um, oh yeah, um, Kilbrimbor. Yes, Kilbrimbor versus Sauron. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that he was there for like the first half of contact with um, like with the Numenorians in Middle Earth, right? But not for the second half. Yeah. Because that does kind of frame where the story is coming from quite differently. <laughs> Yeah, and like it's not coming from an authoritative source on the yeah. relations of men to other men. It's like it's coming from an elf. Yeah. Um. No, I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> Though it is, it is weird the amount of stuff. I mean, it's not the only bit of kind of retcon. That there is, um, I I don't know I I doubt it came up in the part where I was away for a brief period, but um, like I believe the essay on the Druidine that is in Unfinished Tales uh, explicitly mentions that there are some Druidine who do go to Numenor, though that they have all left by the time of the downfall. So like oh. the Adine, the Adine that went to Numenor are not monolithic. In terms of like physical race or like, yeah. right? Like it is encompassing of a lot of different types of men, but <laughs> yeah, which we so. can assume even from like the descriptions of Silmarillion men. Yeah. Yes, but which makes it very interesting because it's like, okay, did they? Why did they leave? Or was like, I don't know. If you're adapting this, I don't know. Would Sau would Sauron be the one being like, "Hey, let's uh, <laughs> these these guys look weird. Let's sacrifice them first, please." Well, they uh, start out, I believe, by sacrificing their political enemies, and then yeah. they start sacrificing their political enemies and also people they kidnapped from Middle Earth, who they consider to be inferior. Right. Yes, it's. That that would be a work of adaptation, not of the actual text, but it just, you know, yeah. Right. It, it's a very weird question and kind of you know begs begs a lot of like yeah the earlier conversation about like what exactly is um, culture, um, like to me to me reading this uh, the thing that came to my mind was that a lot of it was actually just technological development. Mm -hmm. which really felt to me um, a very strong uh, element from the... Because the er some of the earlier versions of this story had, um, like, explicitly got the Numenorians to, like, uh, 
the industrial revolution in terms of technology. Um, this one is not quite that far, but in terms of, yes. There's definitely a, like, uh, a kind of real-world parallel where culture is seen in terms of, well, we we can make, you know, we can make ships move with fire and not with wind. Like, can you do that? No? Well, apparently you're not technologically developed. So, um, I mean, we don't quite get steamships, or at least these ones seem to have sails, so... Who knows, but I, I always kind of liked that, the idea of that version anyways. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, what did you say, Eloise? I mean, I think that there's there's technology advances of similar kind, but doesn't actually. They aren't still like steam power is not something they are said to have. Um, but I I don't. I'm trying to remember because I thought there was a reference to like thunder or something, which might be like that the Numenorans might have cannons. When they like when like. Arpharazon bring like marches himself and sits himself on on the hill, and like brings Sauron. I I I'm not sure if I'm imagining this or not, but I I thought there might be something there where there was at least a hint that he might have gunpowder. Yeah, that, but that's that's literally the sky. <laughs> As I said, I might be imagining this, <laughs> but I mean, that's uh, yeah. Arpharazon is a fascinating figure in this story. I don't know. I mean, one of the things I'm actually surprised when I'm reading this is how. Um, kind of like how much more complicated this this portrait of like colonialism is than I expect it to be, especially when I like remember memes of like you know you know devil worship brings colonialism <laughs> or something, which is sometimes how it's portrayed. It's like no, well the colonialism comes way before the devil worship comes in. Uh, right, they're, they're, the Numenoreans start exploiting their own. Yeah. Yes. But it's... Um, I, I feel that this text could like, easily support a much more negative reading of the Numenoreans. Um, 
like like in a very in a way that that like in those like that the the chronicles of the kings of Judah um and Israel are off at least I, at least the earlier ones um I believe those are books of kings are very critical of a lot of the kings it feels like like there's a at least the perspective on these is that the Nubi the Numenorans go downhill actually quite quickly um and but that by kind of I mean I don't know they the the authors might think that like oh yes them like going and like teaching like they're bringing their knowledge to other peoples was good but once they started building kingdoms and started taxing people like they're already they're already falling off the deep end um which um, is sorry yeah i'm just like i don't i don't know that it's an anti-colonial text but it's definitely a not a flattering image of colonial of colonial powers uh into, you know it's much more uh I find this like the Akalabeth is a much more negative portrait of the Numenorians than like the Lord of the Rings, for the most part, is because at that point it's be, like the, this is the return of King Arthur or something. You know, it's the once and future king story we're getting, not a. Uh... Um, I wanted to ask. So, like, Josh compared this to the the king what was it jordan again that you were talking the list of kings of judah or something yes the yes the rulers of the the kings of um israel and judea um as written in like uh the books of kings and chronicles okay uh, so, yeah, the, so i believe yeah um i'm trying to remember uh chronicles is a later text uh, written by kind of the post-exile and is it's actually more sympathetic to some of like the ones that the earlier like i think it's like exile and post-exile is when those are written so it's like the 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 kings are like the book of kings is like oh these guys are awful and they're the reason why like the persians came and destroyed our country <laughs> it, like that is explicitly the like they went bad and bad and bad and eventually god just like i've had enough with you the persians and are coming and going to you know enslave you enslave all of judea and take you away okay so my question is like like josh pointed out that this paralleled that like biblical history or portrayal of a line of kings where um starts out good goes downhill kind of tries to redeem itself at the end but like doesn't it's too late at that point so my question is for those of you who actually know this original source material what do you think like what do you think it can tell us about the Akalabeth? like what kind of um what kind of intertext or transformation do you think Tolkien is making in the Akalabeth? And what kind of meaning can we get out of this story if we're comparing it to that other story? So, uh, 
I guess so from my my memories of this um I think the style is very similar in that like there's a clear moral judgment made about most of the kings and here we have like very specific ones that are like these ones are proud these ones are you know you know these are the ones who are taxing uh the you know who start like building palaces and start you know getting gold from the mainland and bringing it back um i'd say the the interesting difference is that where the um these old testament texts really are they are really interested in the spiritual and a kind of moral sense of the kings pretty much to the exclusion of like policies they're very interested in like where the kings worship if they allow people to worship at the temple versus or like if they enforce only worshiping at the temple versus going to mountainsides and just have you know having like local kind of cults go on and who they have as advisors I'd say the fact that the Akalabeth kings is seems to be very clearly it ha it has the same texture, but the kind of moral judgment is explicitly about their treatment of like their settlements on Middle Earth. It's like very, right, like Israel and Judea are really are not colonial; they are expansionary. And this and Numenor, Numenor is, and that is an incredibly big difference. And that expansionism is seemingly kind of the crux of, like, the kind of the use of the Valar's of the Valar's gifts and their treatment of other peoples are the main kind of turning points of the of the moral judgment of the kings of Numenor. Um, so I find it a very, it's almost like, it's like, yes, we're going to mash up, uh, like, Judeo-Christian, like, tradition of this, of writing about these kings and this fall of this, of this nation, and coupling that with, like, <laughs> European colonialism, right? We're, we're mixing the two together, right? It, like, I feel like it's almost a, a sort of weird indictment. But, or I could read it easily as a uh, as a kind of indictment of like the English, um, you know, ex, you know, uh, Commonwealth. In that way, at least that's the way I see it. That's this weird mix. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. No, that's really interesting. Um... Does anybody else have thoughts on this or on like Numenorean colonialism more generally? Um, I don't know the, the Book of Kings, so I can't comment on that. Uh, but uh, there is this shift that, that they use to show that the kings have become bad. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, they go to those colonies and instead of bringing gifts, and help they start like being tyrannical basically um 
and I'm like so it's the two views of colonialism that we're doing that for the great cause like we're bringing them to culture like it's a white man's burden but like it's like it's a Numenorean man burden uh, of uh, like bringing civilization and valorization in a way uh, or valor world or to those who did not get any other valor world than Morgoth or indirectly Morgoth um, it's still colonialism it's still uh, it still has disastrous consequences on like the cultures who are victim of it um, and where it each me the wrong way is we only have the Numenorean aspect so of course they are convinced that they're doing the right thing that it's actually good that those populations want that um, and we have no record on the other side of like those those groups who lived in forest and those forests have been like shaved down for agriculture because that's civilization after all isn't it uh and and they've been pushed like as we talked about the druidin earlier like when we and like like last year when we were to talking in the lord of the rings they have been pushed to extremely isolated and small places um that were probably not where they lived and how they lived before or like not fully how they lived before uh because of this Numenorean expansion it's like either you assimilate and you start agricultures with us or you'll have less and less and less forest and territory to to live the way you want to live and um yeah and then they're like yeah those were very bad because they were like capturing people to like bring them over and sacrifice them and i'm like yeah but like it's it's a bit like the white and black legend of spain like they went over there and they tortured indigenous people and like so all enemies of spain were like using all possible stories to discredit spain and make it look like the bad guy from for colonizing the americas um and they went out on the like they went out fully wrong like Spanish people did horrible thing in in Americas, like, um, but obviously the enemies blew that out of proportion. And on the other hand, you had the white legend where like the Spanish were like, we're doing that to bring them Jesus and civilization and like we're so great. But the thing is that those two legends, those two versions of the same story, are the the two versions of the same story in which indigenous people of the Americas got murdered, uh, lost their land, uh, got their like, culture destroyed and attacked constantly. And like, whether or not it was done with good intentions, it was still colonialism and it still has impacts today. And so like, basically, um, I don't know if like, it basically really, really answers the Sophia's question. But, uh, like, it's not 
it's still Numenorean history from a Numenorean point of view, and we're missing a big part of the story on this colonial system. And I think I like deviated entirely from the original question. Sorry about that. <laughs> One thing that I've been thinking uh, about here, uh, it, this might be something that should be brought up next week, which I won't be here for, uh, but that um, if there's a, I, I'm thinking of a, a potentially reading this as possibly um, an indictment of the Valar's a whole project. Right? Like, it's, there's a certain way in which, right, like, in the in the sense that, like, all, right, like, you could read, there's a way you could read this story where it's, like, colonialism is the way things need to be done because of how the Valar have concentrated their gifts into this, like, singular continent. And so they, like, have to, like, bring people physically close to them in order to parcel out their gifts. And then like in some way and then some of those people go back to the wider to the to the realms east of them in order to like spread that like yeah that divinity that power that grace to the rest of the world and there's a certain like like you could read that as like endorsing colonialism in the way that like you know the author has made this system where that has to be a thing and that's you know kind of bad in its own right but i i think that what's fascinating is that you could also take that and then twist right the twist on this story is that the the valar like throw up their hands at the end and like we have royally effed up what do we we don't know what to do aluvatar fix it and aluvatar's solution is well, you don't get to be a part of the world anymore. <laughs> or, like, this concentration of power is so toxic, I have to literally elevate it off the planet in order that, like, to, like, further separate you. Um, and that kind of, like, in order to be more, di like, if you if you haven't figured out a better way like to do this while being a part of the world, then the best way to fix it is for you to kind of not be, um, and and almost like potentially seeing that as a kind of yeah indictment of the whole like concentration of power, um, in that way I like yes yes no more no more of this supernatural colonialism and now everyone has to like live together and deal with it themselves. Um, not sure if that kind of weird the Valar and Iluvatar do not speak with the same voice in this story um, all the time. Yeah. They definitely don't. You guys were, um, you guys are hitting on like a distinction that I remember Sarah and I trying to argue to like the wider Tolkien club um which was that there's kind of two things going on here there's the in-text 
portrayal and condemnation of colonialism. And then there's the like implicit, well, okay, then there's like the, uh, the um, intertext created between the Akalabeth and where it parallels basically where what's literally happening happening in the Akalabeth parallels real world justifications for colonialism, like what Eloise was saying, right? Um, so yeah, so stuff like, like, again, like what you were saying about how there's, you know, creating a literal world where some people like literally do have more grace um, than others is creating like an implicit uh, like justification of that hierarchy that makes it really easy for people to like identify themselves with those people. Um, and like, I, I do think I agree with Jordan that like, that's shown as a bad thing like that you can read this as like even if some people are better than others that only means that they would fall harder but you're still left with the message some people are better than others and like that's yeah so this is still something going on um uh, another thing okay is eloise you brought up uh deforestation and there's this there's this line okay that then the middle then the men of middle earth were comforted and here and there upon the western shores the houseless woods drew back and men shook off the yoke of the offspring of morgoth and unlearned their terror of the dark okay so um no that's really interesting and i'm not only going to the places you think i'm going so i, I read that and tristan was like wow, the, the line drew back is doing a lot of work in that sentence. And I was like, yes, um, it's being portrayed as like, the woods just drew back of their own accord. And, um, and people were happier that way because their homes weren't there. And now they can build homes. Um, but not only do you find out that like their, their hopes were there actually, um, but in Aldarian and Arendis, which is like one of the tales in Numenor, <laughs> you find out that this is pretty like patently false. So this is portraying like the deforestation as kind of just like a natural consequence of civilization and it's completely taking out any kind of active agent. Um, and also any sense of the Numenorians profiting from the deforestation. But Aldarian, so in, in Aldarian and Arendis, you have the story of Taraldarian, who I think is something like the sixth king of Numenor or something like that. The point is he's not even that far into Numenorian history, but everything about that story is already kind of about the decline. And in it, you find out that um, Aldarian, uh, who is ironically named like son of trees, um per like personally his shipbuilding and his colonial enterprise is like personally responsible for the large-scale deforestation of western Eriador. 
like he cuts down so many forests like he cuts down woods in Numenor and then he cuts down woods in Middle Earth because his wife gets mad at him um and like like basically just the fact that here it's portrayed as something that the Numenorians aren't benefiting from whereas in Aldarian and Arendis it is very specifically portrayed as something that the Numenorian king is doing to build ships like they're cutting down the trees and taking the wood to build the ships um makes everything in the Akalabeth so suspicious however I did want to add that not everything is good if you go to find other Tolkien sources I can't for some reason for the life of me remember what it's called but that one story um there's a story that is told from the perspective of a kid on the shores of Middle Earth, like talking about the Numenorians coming. And he's like half Numenorian. Anyway, that story was written surprisingly late into Tolkien's career, and it's super racist. <laughs> and it's in one of the like Book of Lost Tales volumes. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Okay, this sucks. Um, I'm gonna look it up. But my point is that you can find like other things that portray the Numenorians in a super, super terrible light. But you can also find things that are like kind of really racist to the people who are on Middle Earth as well. So I don't, there's nothing uncomplicated about this. Like, I mean, at the same time, it's like one of the things that that I like sometimes have to remind myself is that um, despite being super cool for his time and super progressive for his time and uh, like two things like first Tolkien is still a white cis head man professor at Oxford um, in the 20th century um and also like racist and like biases in general like racist sexist ableist and like you, you name them um are very insidious and like even when you consciously are fighting them off you always find more in a way and like i'm not saying like tolkien should be forgiven of all the racist shit he wrote because obviously not um but yeah like he he it's important also to remind ourselves that he's not like just this great guy who wrote unproblematically in a way it's called tal elmar it's tal elmar and it's in people of middle earth uh, i'm just gonna like throw the tolkien gateway link into the chat yeah I don't know. I find the 
I often find the like product of his time argument to be frustrating because I guess like I find it to be too simple regardless of what use it's being put to because the times that people live in are always complicated and like I feel like people's texts are like the things people write are always um interacting with things that they've read and with like a huge cross-section of ideas in a way that I feel can't really be boiled down necessarily to product of the times even if that's still strictly true like people for like like a lot of people are really surprised when you say that like George Orwell and J.R.R. Tolkien were writing at the same time because George Orwell seems like a much more modern writer than J.R.R. Tolkien and so doesn't mean given for studying you know ancient medieval <laughs> and old English and stuff like that yeah, he's, a, like, he's as much a product of his study, which is ancient text, as you know, modern stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like there, there's. I feel like either way is too simple because yeah, it's an intermixture of like a very very timely commentary and his influences from, like medieval literature, which is the point I'm going to be making in a term paper about how alt-right Tolkien memes are medieval racism repackaged. Um, okay, yeah, so, so I sent you. Yeah. Um. I think we've discussed that short story before, but I uh, I don't recall like the last time we had, and I don't know that I've read it actually. So. Oh really? I okay, just... I haven't discussed I, it with this club before. It might have just come up like once, very quickly at a stuff. Um, but yes. Looks interesting and quite short. I mean, not that short, but like, you know, 20 pages or something. So. Yep. Relatively short. I know I've read The Lost the Lost Road, and that's that's a weird one where, like, it's like two, two modern-day people who, like, I don't know what you call it, dream hack, inception into, like, the bodies of, like, is it is it actually, like, it's not actually like a Sildor, is it? I don't. The, but they like, no, no. But they oh, like yeah, jump yeah. into like the bodies of oh, uh, of American like Numenorians who yeah. are like a Lendl and a Sildor or something like that. Yeah, yeah. or at least the people of that, and it's like, yeah, the the actual time travel story, which was first written. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of like also, small things that I want to read. Yeah, I mean it's also just fascinating because it's also right. I, I don't just like a like it seems very simple to say like you know this is the Atlantis myth, 
for mm -hmm. Tolkien, but in a certain way, it is incredibly that, right? Like half the joke is that it, you know, becomes known as Atalante. Yeah, it's perfect the, the Atlantis myth. Right. And actually, one of the things that I only recently really understood is that the Atlantis, the original, like, um, Atlantis myth is actually about colonialism. Okay, explain. I'm so intrigued. Um, so, so it's, I think, I think we get it, like, we don't have the, we have philosophers from Athens talking about the myth. And Atlantis was in this, like, it's a it's a kingdom. There's like split amongst like thirteen brothers at some point, and some of the kings are bad in there. But they they're rich and powerful, and they are one. They are a nation that ha that the the Athenians believed enslaved them at some point. They mm -hmm. were an aggressor, and part of their pride, like their pride, their fall, uh, and was their like uh, ever expanding conquest. Of the of the islands around them, which for which the gods like, yeah, saw them as tyrannical and then sunk them, right? Which is quite not quite the same as the kind of like technological advancement story, which is usually like the is the one that I've seen most often, um, right? That's the that's the type of stuff that like say the Disney Atlantis movie uh, Aquaman or like any other. Or like modern interpretations usually goes like in our pride we did something to well usually they're like they don't quite go with like the gods were vengeful and just sunk the island mm -hmm. like in atlantis but like even the then movie, uh i think they kind of imply like they don't they very much imply like very 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 thinly but like that they were intending to go to war with this like this technology and that's why they were sunk because they wanted to use their power yeah, as a weapon. I, and so you could make this yeah, I just, that. Yeah. You know. Kind of. Yeah. I'm just like, it's either like there's some of the that, but the colonial like Atlantis was a colonialist power is something that was new yeah. to me when I heard that for the first time okay. quite recently. And I was like, oh. Which is in some ways, one of those things is like, you know, you know, we might think colonialism is a modern has a modern concept, but I mean, empires and stuff were all were a thing in the in the classical world as much as they were in the modern, which is something as a classics major, I'm kind of like. Yeah, all a lot of classics majors are all like really at least pro Roman Empire, <laughs> or yeah. like pro Athens, which was it's of a very imperialist power, like ancient empires, and I'm not sure how much I at the moment am like like that. <laughs> we like yeah. nations that subjugate other nations. <laughs> it's like. I remember a particular member of this club who was in classics and had some a recurring argument with another particular member of this club who was in history with regards to were the Romans good. I, I miss those references, mm. but uh, I believe you. I know. 
items on purpose. Jordan knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> no one else needs to know. I'm sorry. If you wanna, if you wanna have a gossip fest with me sometime, I can spill tea off podcast. Definitely become probably more anti-colonial in the last couple of years <laughs> myself. So it's like, uh, it's a, something. It's like you know. One of those things where texts take on new meanings the more you learn and the more you change. Yep. So. I think it's really interesting. Like, that was really interesting to learn about because I feel like Tolkien is kind of playing with both the technological advancement version of the Atlantis myth and the empire expansion version of the myth in order to make a myth that resonates with modern colonialism. Unfortunately, he also keeps like, I don't even know the, the positioning his heroes as like, I don't know. Nah, I'm, I'm not gonna go there. My point's not fully formed. I mean, it's like the heroes are not heroes because they resist colonialism. They're heroes because they resist Morgoth and Sauron and like uh, going against the gods and the, what gave them their rights, the divine right to be a better man. So I, I see, I, like, I think. I don't know if that's exactly what you were going to say, but that's how I see it. It's like, yes, Elendil, Anarion, and Yuzildur are good in this story because when everyone is like, let's stop being friends with elves and like conquer Valinor, Valinor uh, and get immortal, they take the route of, well, just accept your mor mortality, mortality and maybe don't do that but they're still very comfortable with the colonialism part of their nature like they move to middle earth and they're like oh yeah we're the king now and it's like by which right you were given numenor you were not given middle earth um i like you know uh so yeah i feel like it's like, but but at that point, that. what's interesting is that they're moving into existing Numenorean infrastructure, yeah. right? Actually, like, that. well, yeah, but but that's like, I mean, I guess it, I guess it makes it less personal to them, but it does make it, it, it does tie into like the history of colonialism, right? Is mm. that, that like the the homeland or whatever sunk, but yeah. they're able to move to the colonies that were already established. To be honest, that's actually one of the things that, like, when I understood kind of the whole history there, makes um, Umbar so much more of a fascinating place right? in the Lord of the Rings, right? Because it's not like Umbar, Umbar is not like, I just kind of like, you know, when I first read and Lord of the Rings, I just kind of shuffled Umbar off with, like, Harad and just like, oh, these weird, you know, south and eastern countries, like, they're different from us. And it's like, no, Umbar is the sister colonial nation, and who, like, 
believe them like believe themselves equally um like heirs to Numenor as Gondor is. Um good to talk. Yeah, because so, Lord of the Rings like uh, proper. It's not yeah. it's portrayed as like another one of those bad people. Yeah. Um and I mean like the, the portrayal of bad people they're just, they're is itself just weird a problem. Pirates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're pirates. Um but yeah, no, I agree that like the, the fact that Umbar is like an internal conflict is not brought up except in the appendices. <laughs> I think also like the question I have about like because like yes uh, like Elendil, uh, Israel Dylan and I and move into already existing infrastructure of Numenorean Empire but like uh, how much of those infrastructure were already there like because like they do end up with like kingdom is in Arnor and in Gondor and all over the freaking place and like sort of a loose claim on Rohan, just they don't live there because they too they don't they have enough place. But like um it kinda like made me ask like because like you did say like the sixth king is the one that like heavily deforested because more boats. Um but like how much infrastructure followed up with the deforestation and like did Arnor get built mostly by Elendil, Isildur, and Anayan, or like was it already mostly built? Uh, basically my question is like, did they expand the colonies they moved into? Something like that. Um, yeah, I don't, I think there might be answers to those questions somewhere. I don't know them, but I do know that like, once they actually settled in Gondor, they did push at least some people out. Also, I was I was accurate. I guess that Eldarion was the sixth king, and he was in fact the sixth king. So go me. Okay, I feel like the story of like we're talking about. The continuation of Elendil and Isildur, and I feel like Tolkien did grapple with the fact that human history just is cyclical to a certain extent. Um, because even if you think about the fact that in this story, Isildur is this awesome hero who saves the white tree. But the Isildur we know is a ring wraith. I mean, <clears throat> no, 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 no. Sorry. Had to. The Isildur oh, we know. Oh, don't, don't, no. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard enough to erase my, like, <laughs> it's hard enough to, 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 uh, that's, that's from Shadow of War. That's the video uh, game. Um, I carded it. It's hard enough to, like, try to disassociate, like, Celebrimbor. Yeah. Like my association with Celebrimbor from that game because there's so much less of Celebrimbor in the books. Like, yeah. ugh. 
uh, like it's like oh man the war with Celebrimbor was is actually a thing in the books and then you're like okay but like super fascist Celebrimbor of the video game I don't think is a quite correct no no uh, no uh, thing like I mean I could see that maybe like his father or uncle being like his what his one of his uncles being like that, but uh, sorry, no. sorry. Like, yeah, like I, I I like playing those games, but like yes, when Elsildur and Helm Hammerhand are Nazgul, that is just like I have more of an issue with that than like the whole like stupid sexy sexy um, Shelob. Yeah, no, like okay, that's really funny because like. The uh, the non Shadow of War related uh like Celebrimbor in fandom or whatever is just kinda like a a kingly dork who was surprisingly weird for an elf, made a lot of um made a lot of rings and was the first elf to ever fuck the dwarf. Um Okay. Narvi. I mean, anyway. I mean, he did. He did have a war with Sauron. He did march on Mordor. <laughs> that is a oh, thing yeah. that is in the books. But yeah, oh, yeah. And then like... he like dies tragically, and everyone's really sad about it. Yeah. And then the yeah. are all like, "No baby." Um. Yeah. And then the video game is all like, "Oh yes, the like the Ubisoft towers in this game are all like all of Kilabrimbor's old strongholds that he built all across Mordor." Is he? Is he... <laughs> had this like you know terrible war that murdered thousands and that he's all you know we must we must make another ring to defeat Sauron's ring and... oh that's how that goes okay anyway okay that's the anyway. end of the first game and then you get us yes no the end of the first game is we need to make a new ring and then you get it in the second one eventually let's do the plot again Right, no, I heard about that. Okay, anyway, so so leaving Shadow of War aside, the thing is, like, we're reading the story of Isildur's heroics, and to us, like, Isildur is the guy who couldn't give up the ring, the guy who first called it his precious, and, you know, that guy who honestly kind of sucked. Um, and, like, that hits on something in this, which is, like, that people keep having the same flaws and keeping making the same mistakes and then people also keep trying to fix those mistakes um but i think that's maybe one of the stronger arguments to make against like i don't know an i a continued i well Okay, basically, basically, if we're going to be identifying ourselves with like Elendil and the Numenorians, as Tolkien does at various points, and um, and like in with various of his heroes, um, it definitely needs to be in the sense of like we make mistakes and are stuck with those same mistakes that we can either try and fix or fall into if we don't like make drastic changes to avoid those mistakes happening again to us um which is something that i don't think tolkien is wholly unaware of because that issue of people who seem really promising in their youth like 
you, you see that cyclical problem of mankind's evil happening with Isildur here and also with like his unfinished sequel to the Lord of the Rings with like a new shadow or whatever where like he abandons it and then wrote in his letter that like he realized that he couldn't keep telling the story because the answer was people would forget what they learned in like two generations max and start role-playing orcs in the street and just not be good anymore. I think that's, there's something I've been just kind of interesting to me thinking about, which is actually the history of like the Northern kingdoms in, um, of, uh, of Middle Earth. Um, you know, when, when it splits into three, two and then three, mm -hmm. um, uh, with, uh, Cardolin and, uh, yeah, Rudor, Cardolin, and, yeah, Rudor, yeah, yeah, but and it's the like, other one. I just, yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think it's, yeah, Arnor, yeah, well, no, Arnor there's a the, couple, is the unified one. Arthodyne, 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 yeah. Rudar, and Cardolin. And Cardolin, yes. yeah. Arnor gets, yeah. Um, sorry. <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, Eloise might might actually know this better, being a, a Lotro no, player. No, I, I, I forgot to read all of the background and like, I, I think yes. it was. It, it was. Like, the, that's um, like all the, all, all the, all the ruins, all the ruins around the Shire and stuff are all these kingdoms. So cool. like... Right when you're talking about colonialism, I'm I'm remembering. I think it's one of the Arthodyne kings who like gets you know his he gets defeated and he like gets shipped off to uh, oh a Fornost and he's like dying and he's like here's my ring, you know and he's like right like yes. it's it's definitely a much you know this right this which is a very like colonial story where you have like the colonial king going to this like you know uh, uh, people who don't really have much contact with any other nations because they're just so far away why are you here from everyone else because i can't and they're go like, anywhere else we don't he doesn't listen to anybody that you like uh, you can't go that way it's like ice it's you know, it's cold season you can't just get to the ocean Oh, the guy, right. yeah, the guy who sunk two Palantiri in the Bay of Forachel, yep. that guy. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah, there's, that there's guy. But it's, Lord of the Ring online for right, him. like, there's this, Great. yeah, but it's, like, right, there's this continuous, like, right, the, the story of the colonialism is kind of, right, it's like, everything, it's like, it's kind of interesting, because it's like, Aragorn is the exception, right? This whole Return of the King is like the once in a once in an age like actually something good comes of this in a way. Um like so it's like we we associate it because that's the story we have, that's the main focal point, but all the rest of this history is just a succession of failures for the most part. Um and like the good things that come of it are like you know when gondor is like yeah we can't 
you know, control all this land for ourselves. So yes, let's give let's give the uh, the Rohirrim some land, even though they'll also you know terrorize whoever was actually living there themselves. I. But there's this. Yeah, I have something to say about yeah. that. Um. I think basically like. The story of Aragorn is especially fantastically good because he's in a situation where he has to be so radical in one way or another. But the people who come after don't have to. Because the big danger is over in a way. Like they don't like the same way for example like uh, I remember discussing that with some of my professors, Spanish professors, and so they lived under Franco dictatorship in their youth, and their and their parents lived most of their life under the dictatorship. Uh, and when election time would come, they were like, "It's not only rational, like it's not only because I disagree with the extreme right that I'm going to vote against them. It's because." I'm fundamentally ingrained in me that I refuse to have another of those governments ruling over me. It's an emotional reaction too, as well as a rational one. And they were telling me of, or telling me and my class, of how when they talk about people who come from Eastern Europe, those people have the same exact reaction towards extreme left governments rationally they agree like they also they disagree with the, the the logic but they also fundamentally refuse to go back to what they left or to something similar because they've known what it is but personally i've known neither and even though and so i will oppose the extreme right all the extreme left based on personal beliefs and personal but like not on personal experience you know what i mean and i think that's also what happens with aragon and a lot of the kings is that like aragon's experience of sauron and fighting against sauron is very there, very much there. Uh, he he gets very close. Well, like he fights for Gondor, he fights for Rohan before like the whole quest of the ring. Like he even goes to Harad. Like he knows by experience, not only by oh yes, like by moral and rationalization, he knows why he wants to fight Sauron so badly. And I'm not sure all of the king before or after do that. They don't have this such a close hand experience of all the nuances of Sauron's effect on the world. And they like, some of them will fight Sauron out of principle, which is still a good thing because he's still fighting Sauron. But they don't have the experience that 
Aragon had, and I think that experience makes him even more radical into wanting to like not be Sauron, not fall for any of his tricks, not fall for like any of his lies and destroy him or die trying. I'm I have a lot of hold in my history of Gondor and stuff, so like maybe there's probably like counter argument to that, but I think that's one of the things too. I mean, I think I don't think you're wrong. I mean, Aragorn has a very singular um, childhood and education, I guess you would maybe call it. Like, he is the most world. He is the most worldly man in Middle Earth by like, yeah, the widest margin possible. <laughs> yeah, and like importantly, Aragorn not only spends time with the Rohirrim and Gondorians, but like also with the Haradrim and people of Rune. So there's something yeah. incredibly special about him, and actually, that might be something for like why I was just like. That's, I mean, it's it's something you don't actually maybe entirely get if you only, like, like if you're me um, and don't read the appendices for the first, like, 20 years of your life uh, while having read Lord of the Rings a bunch of times. No one will blame you. But just, like, right, like, that's something where, like, that is something very hard to understand like just from the text and why like say like when peter jackson adapted it they had to change his character so much in order to give him give him a different type of perspective that makes him a better king that they could actually tell instead of right this kind of this this worldliness this um kind of a, a greater a greater understanding than just you know, some rich pampered prince who got, you know, raised by an elf. Um, right. It's not. It's not because he has the right to be king that he's like the actually best person to lead. That's. It's. It's more just the thing that allows them to. You know, it's it's the it's the good political play to get the right person in charge in charge, somehow. I don't know, but this is Lord of the Rings. But I, there is something I'm really appreciating here um, about the facsimile of history that Tolkien has made with the Numenor and the story. Like, yes, we can deal with all these political issues and how, like, good or bad, and you know, maybe, maybe one of the things is that as a story we are sometimes very used to like this being like this is a somewhat of like a perfect picture of the world where we should take lessons from it but the fact is that this Tolkien has managed to make a very messy world but also something that has a lot of a lot of things going on to it that you don't always recognize on first blush like it's not it doesn't it's not very simple and the fact is that we get these short stories that span so many generations that it's actually like, oh, there is a lot of things going on here, um, and it feels so much more like a real history. So, you know, I like, you know, it's like Numenor is not a good, it's not like 
the greatest thing that happened to mankind in a real like in a moral sense i don't think but the the messiness of the out of the out kind of the outfall of that on how it reshapes middle earth politics for the next two ages is something that i feel is very very like he at least thinks this stuff through in a certain way which you know in a way that isn't just all heroes and villains uh well i should go but i just wanted to say that like i found out that the snowmen of borchal are in um lord of the rings online and no 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 but like listen the the wiki says many aspects of their language, culture, and appearance seem to be derived from or inspired by that of Finnish, Sami, and Inuit peoples. But then they like list a bunch of words and names, and they're literally Finnish. Yep. It's like they call themselves the Lumivaki. Their chieftain is Uriana. Like these are literally just Finnish words, and like that's I don't like that. Like, I am fine with people using Finnish in their fantasy books, like, I've encountered it before, but, like, I don't like it in Tolkien, because he very deliberately made all of his languages, except for, you know, the, the one it's being translated into, like, languages that aren't real-world languages, and then they just, like, dropped Finnish in there, because they were like, well, that'll seem foreign to most people. I, I don't know I mean that, that simple. I'd like to give them some credit for not just making them. I mean, I, you know, English. I guess. I mean, I think. I, yeah, I, I, I think. I mean, I think it's almost like, um, at least. I mean, I've only played a very small amount of Lotro, um, but it is a very much. It is very much like, in a in a certain way, it is the most fully rendered adaption of Middle Earth. In existence, and so there is a. I mean, I, I do not blame so them for on design <laughs> that they didn't have any more time and money for like no. con length. So like, they were like, okay, document. But I, but I also don't think that they w would want to do it. Like, it, there's a certain. I think they've thought long and hard about it. Um, I think probably there's a certain way in which the fact that Tolkien used Finnish. Right, because he he uses Finnish, right? That was like he likes Finnish, and that's what he based like Quenya on, right? Yeah, that's... it's it's Quenya is yeah. inspired by Finnish. They, like, like there's a that makes the, it the worse to me. I think you it makes it it makes it better. It makes it better to me because there's oh. a certain way in that like it's in the orbit already. Um. Right, like it's. It's kind of the closest thing to like what like a real world language could be, like. And aren't like the the coastal ruins just lifted straight from like old Finnish ruins, like one to one? No. Uh... They're um they're really really similar to I think the Elder Huthark, which yeah. are not Finnish. They're Norse. I mean, though, there's also something which I'm like, you know, I, I don't know how they think about it. You could also be like, in in a sense, like, 
if if Middle Earth is a translation, like Lotro is like right. They don't actually have Finnish names. We're just translating them into Finnish because it's the closest thing we have to the like linguistic like descendants of Westron and Quenya that managed to get into this like region of the world. I know. Which I kinda like as a in a concept. You yeah, it's just like it just feels. Um, you you had like uh, the Shell men, and then you had like like they encountered the elf and they taught the elf their own language. I know that's absolutely not how the story goes, but like, and that's why like Quenya looks like Finnish because the people who taught them how to speak. <laughs> I'm gonna bullshit here. It's absolutely not how it happened, and I'm probably sure like uh, you can open the first page of the Cinnamarillion and I'm wrong, but uh, yeah. So. Someday we need to just have an entire discussion of Lord of the Rings, but we force ourselves to only use the Westron names for all the hobbits and see how long we can go for that. Because no. <laughs> that would be awful. <laughs> Actually, there's like one blog I follow on uh, Tumblr and like they ask their followers to um, make um, translation into their own language or like either give the translation or make their own translation of like uh, the name of like the hobbits. <sighs> it's hilarious. And at the same time, I'm like, why? For some of them, I'm like, why? Why did you do that? Because, like, particularly French, I'm like, no, I refuse to acknowledge that to exist. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's actually a funny thing. Anyway. Last one. I don't want to judge developers because they're poor and tried their best. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that Forochelle is not more important in Lord of the Ring Online, but it's clearly not that important in Lord of the Ring Online. Like, it's not the main place. Well, yeah. You go, a bit, uh, you go there a little yeah, bit to like find the the guy who loves the two palindromes, talk to his ghost, and realize that, um, yeah, he made bad choices, uh, <laughs> and then you never never have a reason to go back ever again. Um, that's basically it. Except go, maybe go to see the here. giant. The giant structure is made out of like weird monster bones, because that's a thing in that in that location. Yeah. Just like giant rib cages just poking out of snow. Yeah. It's cool. very cool. Like it's aesthetically cool. Uh, <coughs> I don't know how to explain that. Maybe like death of dragons? Eh? Uh, <laughs> but uh yeah. It's aesthetically very cool. And uh I, I don't speak enough Finnish to have picked up on the name and I'm sorry it hurts you. <laughs> Uh, fine. As long as, as, long, as long as it's better than uh, Volka and Politica, the 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 polar bears. The from Father Christmas letters. The oh oh yeah 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 yeah. Paksu and Volkozuka. It's not furry. It's hairy. <laughs> Yeah, but whatever. I mean, like, the, the use of Finnish makes, is, time. like, fine in that. Like, it makes sense. Um, it's it's just slightly wrong. 
I guess we'll just have to agree on that particular aesthetic choice. That's a very much different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to go, but it was nice talking to you guys. Yeah. Good luck on your essay, Louise. <laughs> it's a book critic. Actually, Stephanie's the book. Yay. We are discussing this again next week.